0: coming to the vaccinations, um, you are right to point out that it's a challenge. It's a bigger challenge for emerging markets. And so from a credit perspective, one has to make a judicious and I think somewhat conservative assumption that things are gonna take quite some time to be rolled out in emerging markets. And because of that, we need to incorporate into our analysis what that means for public finances and whatever pressures governments might face. And if they do face pressures, will they have access to multilateral financing? or regular market financing to get through another year.
1: That was Cem Karajada, head of Emerging Markets Sovereign Debt. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number one of season four of Streaming Income. We are back and excited to bring you a brand new season packed with in-depth conversations on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, private credit, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with Cem Karajada. Chem is head of Barings Emerging Markets Sovereign Debt Group and a portfolio manager on several of the firm's EM debt strategies, ranging from sovereign and local currency debt to blended total return strategies. Chem has worked in the industry for over 25 years. He joined Barings in 2014 and before that served in a variety of roles with Oppenheimer Funds, Credit Suisse, the IMF. Standard & Poor's, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. In the conversation, we focused on all things emerging markets debt. Specifically, we reviewed how 2020 played out for the various EM debt asset classes in the face of the global pandemic, and where that's left yields in emerging markets today versus their developed market peers. We also discussed how the rollout of the vaccine will impact the outlook for emerging markets in 2021, uh, the role that potentially higher interest rates and fluctuating currency values could play in that equation, and how ESG considerations are changing the investment landscape in emerging markets. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Jem Karashita. All right, Jim. Welcome back to Streaming Income. Thank you, Greg. Excited to have you here. Uh, it's been a little while since uh, you were on the podcast last time, and a lot has happened, to say the least, both uh, in emerging markets and around the world. So it'll be great to catch up on everything, especially EMD-related. Uh, I actually wanted to start by by looking back for a minute and, admittedly, asking you what may be an impossible question, but I'll ask it nonetheless. Uh, I was hoping you could give me the, the two-minute look back at what happened in emerging markets uh, last year.
0: Thank you, Greg. Um, I'll try. Uh, the obvious is that COVID happened like it happened to every uh, place on Earth. And the immediate consequence was also the same consumption and investment demand fell precipitously as countries were managing, of course, the, the health crisis. And that meant that private savings shot up, just like all of us did not spend as much as we normally do. The same in the emerging market world, and that meant that um, emerging markets were were buying less from the rest of the world than they normally do, and that meant that their trade and current account balances improved greatly, um, unless unless you were very directly exposed to oil and tourism. So, interestingly. Even though the shock was very negative, from a country perspective, financially, their position improved because they simply were consuming less, investing less, and demanding a lot less. And a key reason for this is that if you think about developed markets, which is where most of us live in versus emerging markets, is that developed markets had more firepower more fiscal policy levers to stimulate their economies and sustain, support their populations and therefore sustain or at least cushion consumption investment demand more so than emerging markets. So, because emerging markets had less firepower, they spent less firepower, which means their population spent less. So, that's one broad theme that occurred. The second is the weak links, and there were some weak links, uh, defaulted. So, um, Argentina Uh, And Lebanon's defaults were already in motion, but Ecuador, which was a country that was on edge, defaulted directly as a result of COVID. Sri Lanka's financial position weakened so much that it's trading near default. It hasn't officially defaulted yet. Uh, So those are the two broad things that happens to emerging markets.
1: It was such a roller coaster ride 2020, not just for emerging markets debt, obviously, but for just about every asset class. But it's also interesting that um, across the board, all the EMD asset classes ended uh, up the year in positive territory. So tell me, you know, where does that leave us today in terms of, well, why don't we talk about yields? Where does that leave us for yields as we look at across EM sovereign, local, corporate, and in you know, maybe how those stack up versus developed markets?
0: So, an important qualification is that the averages don't do justice. So let me let me give you the stats, and then we'll run through them. Um, the local yield to maturity today is 4.3%. But within that, you have a Brazil, a Mexico, a Colombia that's 5 to 6% plus, and these are now the index yields if you take the longer ends of the curve, the local curves of these three countries. It'll be even higher. Or South Africa, 10%, or Russia, 6%. So you have that group of sort of higher yielding countries, if you will, versus uh, several lower yielding countries such as the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, and Thailand. So on the surface, it doesn't leave us with a lot, i.e. 4.3%, but within that, there's great diversity and therefore opportunity to exploit. We happen to like quite a quite a few of the um, long ends, for example, of the high yielders, and that is is that that is why they are opportunities. Um, the global diversified is, is similar. The average is 4.7% yield to maturity, but almost 100 basis points of that comes from triple C-rated post-default or in-default or near-default cases, some of the names that I mentioned before. So if you strip that out, you're left with actually something less than 4%. Again, not a lot. Uh, Now, in credit, we've had quite a bit of tightening. And this, incidentally, less than 4%, if you strip those names out, this is now, if you strip out Argentina, Lebanon, Ecuador, Sri Lanka, um, for an eight year duration product. Which means that, for example, in the triple B spreads, you're getting 160 basis points in spread, which is almost unchanged to pre COVID, maybe 10, 20 over at most. In double Bs, Uh, It's 364 in single Bs. It's 560 basis points of spread. In the case of double Bs and single Bs, we're about 50 over pre-COVID. So some juice you can argue, but also the world is more difficult today than it was pre-COVID. And lastly, SEMB, the ultimate maturity is 4.2%, but that is for a much shorter duration. Asset class, four and a half, five years, and there the spread is 320 basis points. So we've come a long way um low-hanging fruit is mostly gone uh, which brings us back to the hard work of country selection or corporate selection is really the the main way to add value
1: yeah and you mentioned uh, the MB and the semB which of course for our listeners if they're not familiar uh, are the sovereign and corporate EMD indexes put together by JP Morgan uh, if you don't know that so um well, yeah, I mean, that, that theme, gem just in terms of credit selection, country selection, I mean, that seems to always be a theme uh, with your team. And I, I think your point around the index level statistics, not really telling the full story, uh, is well taken.
0: Yeah. And again, if you look at index level um, spreads, you know, you could make one statement or another in this case that's it's over uh, their U.S. You know counterparts, U.S. corporate counterparts. Uh, so triple Bs will will have, a, you know, a few tens of basis points more spread in them than their U.S. counterparts, uh, and the same in the corporate land. Uh, but again, it's not about the averages. It's 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 about getting the specific the, the selection right at at the individual country level or corporate level. So we don't never can we you know. Um, take a view from a top-down perspective and say, oh, emerging markets are so much better value because they they, they have this much more spread over U.S. At, a, at, a, at any given point in time. It's much more about what specific opportunities you're finding and, and you're able to express yourself with.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, that reminds me actually of a paper that you wrote, I think almost, hmm, let's see, probably exactly a year ago now on uh, active management in sovereigns. And basically, if I remember correctly, the point that you were making was exactly this. I mean, there's so much idiosyncratic risk in this space that uh, looking at index level stats, performance, et cetera, uh, is almost meaningless uh, because the uh, country performance diverges so much uh, country to country, uh, credit to credit.
0: Yeah. If if you don't mind, I want to sneak in the point about 2019, which is what that paper was about, looked at performance in 2019 across countries and everybody was up but if you looked at all countries versus the index you had great divergence in, in performance some of them returning five ten percentage points less in return some of them the exact opposite five ten percentage points more so a lot of opportunity for for alpha uh and the same happened in 2020 if you look at the returns again we just said you know sovereign was up five percent that's great but if you look at a chart at a country level um, yes most sovereigns were up in, in the case of 2020 the distinguishing factor was that is about a dozen sovereigns were were down and some of them were down 30 40 50 plus percent and of course most of these were either the default cases or the post default cases but tremendous uh, divergence again occurred in 2020
1: Okay, so so let's look forward now and think about, okay, how does if, if we've just established that it, that it's it's about kind of picking the right credits, the right countries, et cetera, let's talk about what may happen next. and and maybe let's start with the pandemic because that's obviously you know, probably the biggest f- factor that that may drive the certainly the economies of all these countries. You know, what are your expectations there? I'm curious how, for instance, the how the pandemic plays out in emerging markets may differ from what happens in developed markets. Um, you know, I think it was actually just yesterday, I was reading a Bloomberg story um, that was talking about how uh, high income countries uh, have secured about 85% of the access to Pfizer's vaccine and about a hundred percent access to Moderna's. Um, and that uh, I think in some of the EM countries, the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine vaccine, uh, maybe the one that's rolling out more, um, but likely on a slower timeline. So, you know, maybe just how are you thinking generally about how the pandemic plays out specifically in EMs over the next you know year or two?
0: So, where we are, judging from official uh, lockdown announcements, if you will, is that, and and this goes. Let's just talk about the globe for a second. China stands out as having now the least lockdown because they have covid under the best control if you will. So China no lockdown and that means that it's 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 able to be in a much more advanced stage of the recovery sort of those services uh, retail and, and including in retail services that that we wouldn't even imagine starting to consume in, in, in big doses in, in the West they're moving in that direction so very little lockdown in in China and then the u.s ironically is is, is next sort of least lockdown if you will uh, Europe is the highest if you will in terms of the most lockdowns and then in between there are quite a few to few of major emerging markets that that have varying degrees of lockdowns. So there are some major emerging markets whether it's a Brazil or a Mexico or in Indonesia or Turkey that have gone through various phases of restrictions and and so forth in response to the second wave and in varying degrees they've all had second wave. Um, and then there's a group of emerging markets uh, especially in sub-Saharan Africa that just, Partly because they never closed and they're unable to close, that have sort of stayed open. So, those are your broad categories in terms of lockdowns, with China being the best. And then, if you go to mobility indicators, we hit rock bottom in, in the spring of last year, where mobility was down 60, 70, 80%. And then we recovered quite a bit towards minus 20, but then we, this is now at the global level mostly, including EM, and then we took a hit back again. And then now we're starting to inch our way back down. So the pandemic is still real in its, in its economic effects. It's still there and it's still real. Um, now, if we try to be a little bit more forward-looking with respect to the vaccines, well, two or three things. The, the first is on China, when we're being forward-looking, that economy is doing well um, and is needing less policy support. And, and that is good news for commodity producing other emerging market economies. Uh, China is the biggest driver of commodity prices. So that's just a, an important point to make. The, the second is is that while economic depression is bad, um uh, recall what I said earlier at the top of the, uh, of the podcast, which is that essentially people not being able to spend means, well, if you can't spend, you're saving. If you're saving, you're not, you're not buying imported goods. So the trade balances are still going to be in decent shape. Um, so that that's sort of a, a bit of a silver lining, for lack of a better word. Uh, but then lastly, coming to the vaccinations, um, you are right to point out that it's a challenge. It's a bigger challenge for emerging markets and the pace at which it rolls out, when it'll be completed. Uh, at the moment, many emerging market countries are using uh, a vaccine produced by China, the efficacy of which is uh questionable um, and so forth and so on. So from a credit perspective, one has to make a judicious and I think somewhat conservative assumption that things are going to take quite some time to be rolled out in emerging markets. And because of that, we need to incorporate into our analysis what that means for public finances and whatever pressures governments might face. And if they do face pressures, will they have access to multilateral financing or regular market financing to get through another year how are you
1: actually finding doing that analysis during the this covid period where you know i know that you would normally be traveling all over the world kicking the proverbial tires Uh, in some of these countries what are you doing now
0: oh that's a darn good question um so it hasn't been so bad in the sense that virtually just like we're, we're you know we've accomplished so many things through virtual meetings and so forth or conference calls we have had access to policymakers uh, you know whether ad hoc or or when and if they're on the roadshow marketing a bond uh, yes we don't see them in person in various financial capitals but we are able to uh, be in small group calls. Uh, investor calls where we're able to hear their story, ask our questions. We're able to do our calls with with the experts, political experts, other independent economic uh, analysts, uh, some consultants that we, we hire or IMF mission chiefs and so forth. So there's been an efficiency gain in traveling less and being able to access all this information virtually. That's the first point I'd make. I would qualify by saying, of course, we've had the benefit of years of traveling before and knowing the countries really well. So we have our filters and these filters allow us to then continue this relationship with governments, with the issuers in a virtual basis pretty effectively, just like bearings was able to very effectively operate first in person and then continued operating pretty seamlessly uh, virtually because we've had the relationships And, and the same to a great extent applies to the issuers. And the last point I'd make, and it's maybe the most important is at the end of the day, Uh, Because the future was so uncertain uh, with respect to, well, we knew the shock, but we didn't know how long it would last, when we would get out of it, um, how countries would react. In some ways, visiting countries would not have easily solved the issues. In other words, uh, we had to be more data-driven, more forecast-driven. We had to do more stress tests. So we had to do a lot of data-driven work just because, in some ways, we had to re-underwrite the countries.
1: We talked a bit about the uh, pandemic. Um, of course, the other thing that's kind of dominating uh, the news flow today, and especially this week, uh, is you know some of the political discord that we've seen, especially here in the U.S., um, but elsewhere around the world. So I'm curious uh, how this is impacting the team's outlook for 2021 for some of the emerging markets.
0: As a practical, near-term, sort of one-year outlook, I don't think it's huge. What's happening uh, – I, I, what has happened in the past several years, including this year's in the U.S., um, has had, I think, more fundamental effects on anything and everything, frankly. So what I'm talking about are the obvious elements, sort of the loss of U.S. leadership, the loss of universal values – and, and these things, I think, have been negatives. And uh, just because, it, you know, we, we sort of lost the global standards, if you will, global standards of conduct. Um, and perhaps the, the, the biggest challenge that's been put, highlighted to all of us, uh, including, and the U.S. apparently is not uh, immune from this, is uh, how governments, uh, you know, every government's ability to address the sources of social discontent. Um, which are everywhere and anywhere, including in, in, in richer countries and this challenge is also present in emerging markets. So one of the things that we deal with and in fact last summer we, we hired a summer intern to, to explore this topic of the social contract, the contract between governments and their societies and what makes it sustainable. Um, what's you know what, what contracts and policy frameworks, can we have more confidence in that'll provide more stability for a credit versus another? And these are incredibly complicated questions that that apply to everywhere. And I think the in sort of this whole issue of global inequality at the country level and whether people are content. And when they're not content, are their issues addressed and, and so forth. So this is this is an issue that permeates everywhere. But it's but it's fundamental. It's slow moving. It's not something that, you know, one can say it's just about 2021 i think it's it's broader and longer so if you think about
1: how some of this stuff impacts the actual investment environment tell me tell me about that because you know i think about things like okay uh you know you mentioned currencies earlier um you know what kind of impact does um you know some of this these factors have on currencies uh and interest rates you know would be the other one and i want to talk about both currencies and interest rates, because I know depending on the sub-asset class of EM debt that you're talking about, these factors can have a very material impact on your uh, ultimate performance. So tell me about how you're thinking about um, currencies and and interest rates in the the context of what we were just talking about.
0: So let me start with the U.S. because you asked the question earlier, what's the impact of some of the volatility that we've seen in the U.S.? on the rest of the world for 2021 or emerging markets. And the short answer is really not a whole lot because at the end of the day, the U.S. is is still the uh, the riskless rate in the world and certainly the riskless rate for the dollar-denominated um, corporate uh, hard currency universe or sovereign hard currency universe. So in that sense, nothing there has, has changed. So if U.S. interest rates do rise rapidly, uh, then that would be a negative for at least the investment grade and even some of the uh, other double B-rated uh, emerging market corporates or sovereigns that have the n- narrow spreads, if you will, or don't have enough spread cushion. So even though sp- spreads might absorb some of the yield backup, the riskless yield backup. Um, so that, that would be a negative if there was a big uh increase in u.s treasury yields and the other related thing of course is that if, if 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 the riskless rate is higher then of course there's less reason to to seek yield enhancement by going down the, the the credit um spectrum so to speak so from that perspective one can one can say emerging markets might have a harder time accessing cheaper money and because money won't be as cheap as it used to be so that's maybe making too obvious a point whether or not we're willing to sort of um form a strong view that that is what's going to happen, which incidentally happens to be a consensus view at the moment, is, is is not the case. We don't have a high conviction view that that is a material risk. Um, on, on, on the dollar strength, I would say, which is, of course, the inverse or the, the other side of how emerging market currencies will do versus the dollar, um, a lot of emerging market currencies cheapened a lot last year. They, they played a very important role. That is, they depreciated, um, not because countries were importing a lot, but because uh, basically non-residents were pulling out and c- currencies were depreciating for financial account transaction reasons. And that depreciation helped uh, current, uh, the countries adjust their, their trade balances and so forth. So that helped uh, reduce imports even more than they would have fallen anyway. Uh, so they cheapened a lot. And so there is scope for simply because of their cheapness simply because the valuations are attractive both in terms of competitiveness but also in terms of local currency denominated assets including government bonds local currency denominated bonds but also equities that that cheapness can we think can recover some of the uh, you know more value back in 2021 if commodity prices continue to stay high and if the global rec- you know, economy continues to recover. So, from that perspective, I would say um, a stronger U.S. economy, um, helped by a stronger stimulus package, if one comes from the Biden presidency, will help uh, currencies more and will potentially hurt uh, investment-grade hard currency um, I- I- at the same time.
1: You know, we talked about uh, some of the social issues going on, both in the United States but also around the world. Um, you know, I know that's a key factor that you all are considering when you're doing ESG uh, analysis. Um, but I'm interested just to hear about what else you're doing on that front. I know you and the team have been active in terms of, you know, writing some great thought pieces. I think you've got another one coming out uh, in the near future. But how's how's ESG analysis kind of impacting the way you're investing today?
0: Um, ESG factors have always been an incredibly important part of. Our investment process. Um, And that is because in a nutshell, our processes, and this applies to both sovereign and corporates, uh, is to know the country or know the corporate. And, And that knowing means knowing the fundamental characteristics. So in the case of a sovereign, that's governance, transparency, uh, institutions, checks and balances, the independence of institutions, the smoothness of political transitions, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things are incredibly important, not just because they have sort of values, sort of moral values uh, attached to them or maybe other values, but, but because uh, they, they provide an environment in which sustainable growth accelerations can occur or not. Uh, not to mention when we talk about transparency uh, we need to be able to analyze a country's statistics and therefore we need to be able to trust them Uh, when it comes to policy framework we need to be able to um, not only understand a policy framework but believe that uh, that policy framework can navigate uncertain states of the world so we cannot forecast everything and anything looking into the future whether that's u.s interest rates or oil prices or or various shocks that might hit a country. What we can do is assess the quality of the institutions and the policy framework that has to navigate. And we tend to prefer, we've always preferred those policy frameworks that are stronger, more transparent, uh, ones that we can have more confidence in. So that's that's one important thing um, I, I, I would say. It's, it's incredibly important because that's where the numbers come from. And in order to look ahead and engage the sustainability of those numbers, uh, the only way we think we can do it is by knowing those soft factors, or most of which, or many of which, are ESG factors. Um, and now ESG is not the only thing that matters, but uh, there are other things like like traditional fiscal and monetary policies and, and so forth, or in wage policies, that are not directly ESG. But, um, so that's one. Uh, with respect to recent work, it's, it's an incredibly complicated topic, as we've discussed before, about inequality, social discontent, uh, what's the appropriate uh response and so forth so we we are in, indeed we are evolving and we are making advances in this topic and in last summer i mentioned our our work on the social contract we also did quite a bit of work on migration and migration is an importantly uh, is an important topic and potential indicator uh, of a social, political, and economic environment, because basically people are voting with their feet by leaving a certain country and going to the destination country. So the reasons why uh, people are leaving a country can be very telling and informative about the social, political, and economic environment, and and the same goes for the res- the country that's receiving uh, those migrants. So. Um, I guess those are some of the things I would say. And indeed, we do have some work in the pipeline that will see the light of day very shortly.
1: And we're looking forward to that for, for our listeners. Some of the pieces that Jim mentioned, if you go to bearings.com under the Viewpoints section, uh, you can find uh, some of these pieces uh, that are on ESG and how, the, how our emerging markets debt team is is thinking about it. Um, that migration piece was a really fascinating case study comparing what's going on with um, Venezuela to what's uh, wh- what's been seen in Syria, and I think you draw some really interesting conclusions from that. So check that out on bearings.com. Um, all right, Jim, well, we're coming to the conclusion here. Um, I want to ask you uh, two more things um, to start uh, crystal ball time, um, which uh, tends to make people a little uncomfortable, but I'm going to ask you anyways. I'm curious about two things. One is the biggest risk that you see coming down the pipe. Maybe we've covered it already. Maybe we haven't uh, for EMs in 2021. And secondly, would be uh, the biggest uh, unrecognized or unappreciated opportunity that you see coming down the pipe here.
0: I'm probably going to disappoint on both fronts. <laughs> I think, I think, I think on the first. No, I mean because it, it comes back to what I said a little bit earlier. It's to me the 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 biggest risks tend to come from the countries themselves, not the shocks. The shocks will and often you know do occur. Sometimes we can we can make a, a laundry list of. Uh, you know the ones like uh, China having a hard landing. I think there's virtually zero risk of that in the near term. Um, oil prices uh, seeing another leg down. I think that's in the realm of the possible. Um, and one can maybe add other risks. Uh, but I, I think that really the risk that causes the defaults or not or you know instability uh, in in an emerging market country or not tends to come from itself and its own. Strengths and weaknesses. Now, you could you could make the argument that U.S. interest rates rising quickly is another risk, um, but the context in which that occurs will also matter. Um, i.e., a strong global economy uh, will have some positive effects that will offset some of that. So then you'll have it'll be about um, where you precisely want a position in the emerging market fixed income space. So. There are no easy, low-hanging fruit. I, I wish there was. Otherwise, I would have banged it probably a long time ago in this podcast without you asking. But uh, it's our, our daily work is really looking very hard at each country's case, especially the high-yielders, so that we want to exploit that higher spread and yield. But oftentimes, risk-reward is not tilted so obviously to the positive. So we still end up being rather selective and judicious in the high-yield names that we buy.
1: Makes sense. Okay, last question for you, Jim. So if you are uh, an investor looking out at uh, 2021, 2022, and wanting to gain exposure to EM debt, um, I'm curious what your thoughts would be there. We've talked about sovereigns, corporates, local, so it's obviously quite a large universe, uh, different ways to access it, but... What's your broad thinking about uh, about the best approach for investing in EM debt?
0: So if if we're talking about relative valuation among the four asset, essential four asset classes that we have in emerging market debt, I would rank them quickly as follows. I would put emerging market effects as first, as having the opportunity to do some catch-up and have a good return. Second, I would put emerging market corporate hard currency debt because it, it's a very wide opportunity set. You know, we at Bearings underwrite um, almost 1,500 corporates, many of which are on the decline list. But just that many names tells you that there's a broad opportunity set to at least explore and analyze, and the duration of the EM corporate hard currency asset class is low, so you're not running a whole lot of interest rate risk, and you can explore more high-yield opportunities uh, just by the sheer numbers. And then I would put emerging market sovereign hard currency last, partly because of the higher duration, the eight-year duration. Um, If I were to then pivot to say, regardless of whether or not one agrees with that ranking at this moment in time, Uh, the best way to exploit or what strategy to consider investing in emerging market debt, I think probably one of the top candidates would be a blended product that uh, basically leave to the asset manager um, the discretion to decide where in the four sub-asset classes. uh, So, local having two, FX and rates, local rates, and then Corporate art currency, sovereign art currency, where among those four sub-asset classes, um, a, a manager might wish to put more risk in, uh, in, in 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 creating a total emerging market debt portfolio.
1: And what, what types of investors are you seeing in those uh, types of strategies? Is that more an institutional product? you see wealth investors? Just curious on that.
0: I think we're seeing… Uh, we've seen a lot of interest in emerging uh, market debt. Um, it's mostly institutional. And, and, and of course, maybe that's partly our, our- maybe our our bias a little bit that that we have more uh, institutional uh, clients, uh, but interest is very strong. Uh, Emerging market that does screen cheap, and this is not me saying it because I don't do this work. This is what I hear from clients, Uh, but I always tell them um, that's great that it might screen that way. Uh, I'm not a big fan of making generalizable statements like that for the reasons that we already discussed. It's really about the names you're buying. It's not about the averages. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, that's great, Jim. Um, thank you for sharing all these insights with us today. I feel like we've covered a tremendous amount of ground here in a relatively, uh, short amount of time. So I know it's a big, big topic. Um, I've already pointed our listeners to bearings.com, uh, on the viewpoint section but I'll do it one more time just because you and the team continue to write some, some great uh, interesting pieces on ESG and other topics so I would definitely point people there um, but otherwise Jim I hope you will uh, join us again on Streaming Income this has been a great conversation and uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you Greg. Thanks for listening to episode number one of season four of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.